Let's talk some practical science on how to make new friends and improve current friendships. Keep listening on to find out more only here on the People Scientist Podcast. listening to The People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking, to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 128, where every episode I aim to provide us all some scientific information so that we can all become a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier. How are you feeling today? I hope that you're feeling well, and I hope that I can bring you some new and interesting information to brighten up your day. So what am I going to be talking about with you today? Well, I've become interested in the psychology and philosophy and neuroscience behind making new friends. I often hear people say that they feel it is harder to make new friends as they become older. To be honest, I think I might actually have the opposite problem, that I make too many friends and have too many social obligations that I can't keep up with. So today, we're going to dive into both of those sides of friendship. For example, we're going to talk about the psychology and even the philosophy behind friendship. And if we want to make new friends, what are some psychology-based tips in order for us to do so? Let's say we want to invest more time into our current relationships to make them stronger. How can we do that? How much time and effort does it take to maintain friendships? And is there such a thing as having too many friendships. Now this episode will be a little bit different than usual as it won't be based on a ton of empirical evidence like usual. This episode will have more elements of philosophy and sociology and psychology and some of my own personal experiences and stories to go along with that. So I will get into all of that today but before we do let's start off as we always do with a foregone fact where I share a scientific finding from long ago. In February of the year 1900, a psychiatrist from Columbia University was made famous based on his capability to use hypnotism to cure patients of alcohol use disorder, kleptomania, meaning an impulse to steal items, and also used hypnotism to treat children that were known to impulsively lie. Now, the name of this psychiatrist, funny enough, his name was Dr. John D. Quackenbose, a psychiatrist famous for hypnotism with the name Quackenbose. Quack or quackery by definition means that someone is giving fraudulent or ignorant medical advice. And hypnotism to this day is still a debated concept, whether or not hypnotism is real or capable of helping individuals in the context of medicine. 
So back in 1900, what did Dr. Quackenbos find? Well, Dr. Quackenbos said, quote, I find out all I can about the extent of a patient's weakness. For each patient, I have to find some ambition, some strong conscious tendency to appeal to. And then my suggestion, as an unconscious impulse, controls the moral weakness by inducing the patient to further his desires by honest means. End quote. So his method of hypnotism essentially was to learn about the patient enough to understand their greatest weakness and their greatest desire. Then to brainstorm ways to help them lean into that ambition and to lean away from their weakness with honest means. So if someone's greatest ambition was to be rich, for example, and they were aiming to become rich by gambling or stealing, he would instead suggest that the best way to become rich is via other means, like investing, inventing, or selling products with integrity. Now, doing so in a state of subconscious awareness may make the individuals more prone to suggestion. So perhaps if we think of hypnotism like that, simply understanding what makes an individual motivated and providing suggestion to them, I suppose hypnotism could be effective or real. And he found it did help individuals with certain conditions and addictions. So today, is hypnosis used or effective? Well, let's define hypnosis because we might all think of something slightly different. Hypnosis is a state of consciousness where someone loses their ability to control their actions and they are highly responsive to suggestion. It is typically used to help recover suppressed memories or to modify behavior through the power of suggestion. This reminds me of that Friends episode where Chandler is listening to a tape while he's sleeping, and on the tape it is someone saying, you are a strong, confident woman who does not need to smoke, as a way to help him quit smoking. So studies have in fact looked at, looked at this, the power of suggestion while we're sleeping. For example, Cordy in the journal Sleep in 2014 had individuals with insomnia listen to a recording of someone repeatedly saying, sleep deeper, while they slept. And having this play while they slept actually induced benefits to their sleep. Their slow wave sleep increased by 81% and their time spent awake reduced by 67%. So maybe there is something to the power of suggestion while we are in a sleepy or less conscious state. Not necessarily hypnotism, but the power of suggestion. What do you think? Do you think hypnotism is possible? Do you think you have ever experienced hypnosis? Now let's get into the core takeaways of today's episode on the psychology of making friends as an adult. Now, making friends as an adult may be a bit more challenging versus when we were kids, especially now with the onset of working from home, we may be having fewer face-to-face -face social interactions with other people. So in order for us to understand how to make new friends, I talk about the different friendships. It is thought that friendships could be categorized into three different types, friends of utility, friends of pleasure, and friends of virtue. It is thought that the latter, friends of virtue, meaning friends that put effort into our self-improvement and what is best for us, are to be the most beneficial and lasting type of friendship. In this episode, I give practical science-based suggestions on how to turn friendships from being based on utility or pleasure to being more so based on virtue. I give suggestions on how to make new friends, 
wording invites in a certain way, and not being afraid of rejection. I also speak of Dunbar's number, which is the number of friends we can actually have because friendships take time and effort, something that is limited and finite. The number of friends we have may depend on our time, on our skill of mentalizing, which is a component of emotional intelligence. Now, the skill of mentalizing is correlated with larger volumes of gray matter in certain brain regions. Now, let's keep listening on for all those scientific details. Now, Lynch in 2005 defines friendship as a relationship with love, freedom, and choice. So friendship is a voluntary relationship, and it includes a mutual and equal emotional bond. Mutual and equal care and goodwill, as well as pleasure and enjoyment. Bennett Helm, in Love, Friendship, and Self, summarizes friendship as valuable because it promotes our self-esteem. It is life-enhancing, and that friends actually act as mirrors to one another to enhance our knowledge about our own self. In a review by Dunbar in 2018 in the journal Trends in Cognitive Sciences, Dunbar writes of the grand importance that friendship and our social circles have on our mental health and overall well-being, and that friendship becomes really important, particularly as we age and get into our older years. For example, Ho in 2003 reported that the greatest predictor of life satisfaction of an elderly community living in Japan was their friendships. Because friends provide support when we go through hardship, whether that be health issues, financial crises, emotional tragedies, work stresses, etc. Friends can provide us laughter, good times, and someone to share our interests with, someone to ponder the world with. Imagine the opposite, social isolation to go through life's hardships without the support of anyone around us. Social isolation, in fact, is one way that we as scientists can induce depression in animals time and time again without fail. For example, if a mouse is housed alone in a cage, it will develop measures of severe depression, anxiety, and is far more prone to addiction and heavy drug use versus a mouse that is living with other mice in a cage. This has been shown time and time again over several decades. Social relationships, bonding, friendships, they are incredibly important to our mental health, our well-being, and our life satisfaction. So now that we can appreciate the role that friendship plays in our mental well-being, let's talk about how to make new friends or how we can improve our current friendships. In order to do that, let's talk about the three common types of friendship first. Now, much of what I'm about to share in today's episode comes from a compilation of scientific papers entitled Friendship and Happiness Across the Lifespan and Cultures, which was edited by Melixa Demir. Now, Aristotle distinguishes three types of friendship. That can be a friend of utility, a friend of pleasure, or a friend of virtue. And Aristotle believed that friendships that were based primarily on utility were less likely to be long-lasting. So, for example, friendships of utility could be a co-worker that also happens to be our friend, or a friendship that has arisen out of a shared need, like that we both take the same bus together, we have a shared transportation. Now, Aristotle believes that these friendships are less likely to last because those 
things will run out or change. Like someone might leave for a new job or they're going to retire. We're not always going to take that shared transportation every day. So when those things change, what is left of the friendship? As adults, we often find friendships at our place of work. The people that make up our everyday work environment can likely impact us in our mental health more than the job itself. How many times have you heard or even felt for yourself that even when the job wasn't great, the people that we worked with made it all worthwhile? But the opposite could also be true, unfortunately. We could love our job, but the coworkers could create a toxic environment and how difficult that situation could be. Ghislaini in 2012 found that working with a coworker that also happens to be a friend, as opposed to being just coworkers, makes the work much more passionate, more fun, and pleasant. Having your coworkers become your friend also means that the work can be interspersed by moments of leisure time like taking breaks together, talking about non-work topics. Having friends as co-workers may also make it easier to acquire specific abilities and skills that are needed for us to do our job more effectively because perhaps our friends are more likely to help us out or to share that needed information with us. Aristotle philosophized that if the friendship is based primarily on utility, for example, because we simply work together, then it may not last if someone moves away, retires, gets a new job, etc. But no worries. In a couple of minutes, I'm going to tell us all how we can strengthen these type of friendships to be more lasting. Now, the second type of friendship that Aristotle believes to exist is a friendship based on pleasure. So someone that we are friends with that is based primarily on having a good time. A friend that we like to party with, for example. Perhaps a friend that we share an interest with, like if we both enjoy scary movies and most of the relationship could be based on watching and talking about scary movies together. Perhaps the both of us like to play guitar and most of our relationship is based on playing guitar. Seeing as interest changes, we grow older. If this is the only thing or the primary thing the relationship is based upon, again, Aristotle philosophizes that it may not last. It is thought that in times of stress or hardship, that these two types of friendship, based primarily on utility or pleasure, may collapse. Now the third type of friendship, based on virtue, Aristotle thought to be the more ideal and likely to last. This type of friendship is primarily based on the genuine desire of two friends to support one another and to put effort toward what is best for the other. I think that there can certainly be overlap among the three categories of friendship, and very likely there will be. For example, I have really wonderful friends that I work with, so a friend of utility, but I also share a common interest with, so a friend of pleasure, but they also genuinely put effort into what is best for me, so a friend of virtue. But I suppose that the question for all of us is, is what is the primary defining nature of the specific friendship? Is it primarily based on convenience and utility, like working together? Is it primarily based on pleasure, like just partying together? Or is it based more like genuinely supporting one another on virtue? If what our friendship is based on were to change, would that friendship last? If you were to think of some friends that you have right now, do you think you can define what type of friendship they are? Are they based primarily on utility pleasure, or virtue. 
So what can we take from that information? What can we do today to make our friendships better? Well, let's say that we have a friend at work or a friend that we like to have good times with. So a friend of utility or a friend of pleasure. How can we transform that into a friendship of virtue? If a friendship of virtue is based on a genuine desire and effort to see what is best for our friend, that we want to see them improve, that we want to see them succeed, then we can brainstorm from there. We can think of something that we can offer to our friend that would be of benefit to them. For example, all of my friends, and likely all of you listening right now, know that I enjoy doing this podcast. It's a part of who I am, and I love doing it. And I also love to dance, that I think of myself as a dancer. So if at any point any of my friends ever said to me, Hey, I know how important the podcast is to you. Is there anything I can do to help you out with that? Or, hey, I know how much you love to dance. Is there any way I can help you with your dances? Oh my goodness, if someone said that to me, how much that would mean to me. Because within that simple question holds so much. Within that question, it means that they would have taken note of what was important to me. And that means that they would have stopped to be thoughtful and thought, hey, I want to help grow her passions. And then they additionally asked how could they they could help and be a part of my passion. That is really profound, very simple, but I think very impactful. Can you imagine the passions in your life? And if one of your friends went up to you and asked you a similar question, how that would make you feel? Probably would make you feel really great, right? So let's stop and think of our friends and what they are passionate about. What is important to them? Can we simply ask, hey, can I help in any way? Can I be a part of that in any way and support you? If they say yes, then that's wonderful. You can be a part of something that they love and invest more into that valuable relationship, should you so choose to. But let's say that they respond by saying, oh, that's nice of you, but no, no. This type of response might come from someone who has a hard time asking for help or a hard time accepting help. So in that scenario, we could offer something more specific or just do a thoughtful action. Like if we notice our friend is excited about planting a garden, let's say for example, we can ask how we could be of help. Or we could gift them a plant or something to put in their garden and say to them that we know how special and important their garden is to them we wanted to help foster that passion. Or maybe you can give them a useful gift, like something that they can kneel on when they're gardening or a new gardening tool. I'll give another example. One of my friends, David St. Martin, or Sainty, he sent me a banner image for my LinkedIn profile for my podcast. He noticed that I didn't have a banner image. And he also knows how special this podcast is to me. So he made me one, and he just sent it to me. And that is a perfect example of someone who took, who took note of what was important to me, noticed what I needed, and just did it without asking. And I'll never forget that and how thoughtful that simple action was. This approach can also be done for something that maybe stresses someone out, or we can do the opposite for a negative thing in someone's life. Like, maybe our friend is stressed about meeting a deadline at work. We can say, hey, is there any way I can help you meet that deadline? Or maybe we can bring them a coffee or a snack or take them outside for a break and say, I know you're stressed right now, 
and I hope that this will make you smile during a rough time. So the specific act will be different depending on your friend, but the approach is the same. To take the time to acknowledge what is important to them, and for us to ask how we can help foster that or to help alleviate that stress. And this type of act or approach will help to facilitate a friendship of virtue, which is a friendship based on the genuine desire and effort to do what is best for one another, because we want to see each other grow and succeed, to want to see one another self-improve. With this approach, it is very likely to result in a strong and longer-lasting friendship versus the other type of friendships. So a good approach to making new friends could be to find a friend based on utility or pleasure first, like someone at work or in our community, or a friend with a shared interest, like a friend at a dance class, at a yoga class, or during a painting workshop, for example, whatever our interest might be, and have that friendship based on utility or pleasure evolve into a stronger lasting friendship by adding this component of virtue to it. I think another interesting thing that my friend Kieran pointed out to me is that as adults, we might be more fearful of rejection versus when we were younger. So we might be afraid that if we ask someone to go for a coffee or to hang out, they might say no. To which her and I said, well, so what? So what if someone says no? Because rejection is a part of life. In fact, I actually want to do a whole episode on the neuroscience and psychology of rejection because that would be a very powerful and insightful episode, I think. So stay tuned for that one in the near future. But we tend to be afraid of rejection, and as a result, we hold back on doing certain things because of that fear. But if we go into a situation thinking, so what if they say no? That can be pretty empowering. So for example, let's say you're at an exercise class, and there's someone that you talk to sometimes casually that you think could be a good friend of yours. Perhaps we could ask at the end of class, hey, I'm going to go grab a smoothie or coffee next door. Do you want to join? Now, I think phrasing it in that way is also less assuming because it insinuates that we were going to grab a smoothie and that we are on our way and we just wanted to see if they wanted to join us. It's not intrusive. It's casual. It's also next door and right now, so it is easy and convenient for someone to say yes to. But if I, by chance they aren't able to join because they have another obligation, they have to rush out, or they simply just don't want to join, no big deal. Because we were going to go get a smoothie anyway, regardless of if they joined us or not. So can we brainstorm how this example might translate into something similar in your particular situation? Like perhaps at work, we could say to a coworker, hey, I'm going to go grab a coffee down the street. Do you want to go for a walk and join? I actually do this all the time at work with my colleagues and friends. And you know what? About two-thirds of the time, the person says, yeah, I'd love to join you for a walk. And about a third of the time, the person isn't in the mood or they're busy and they're unable to. But does the fact that they say no to me stop me from asking people in the future? No way. These people saying that you can't join me is completely normal and to be expected. And if I go into this situation thinking this way, then I'm not going to be stunted by a feeling of rejection because people saying no is just normal. Another suggestion that I found from personal experience, and actually one of my high school interns taught me, side note, I really, really enjoy having high school student interns over the summers to mentor. I feel like I can learn just as much from them as they learn from me. 
And this is a perfect example. I had a really wonderful high school intern two years ago that turned into an awesome friendship, very surprisingly. What was the turning point? She shared a moment of vulnerability with me. She shared her passions with me. That was all it took. I remember it really clearly. I asked her if she wanted to join me for a coffee break. We grabbed a coffee next door, and we went and sat in the grass in Central Park. And she told me of how difficult it was for her to immigrate to the United States as her family didn't speak English. She did, though, and at seven years old, she had to translate everything during the immigration process for her family. At seven years old. She shared with me the difficult challenges she had with her friends at school, and she shared her drawings with me because she really liked to sketch. Now, these were moments of vulnerability because she was opening herself to judgment and critique by me. But she asked me if I had similar experiences. She asked me about my passions. And that was important, too, because she genuinely wanted to know about me as well. She gave me the opportunity to be equally vulnerable. So from my high school intern, she taught me a very valuable life lesson. That sometimes strong friendships can be based off of sharing moments of vulnerability. Sharing what is special or important to us. I'm not suggesting that we need to go up to a stranger and tell them our life story. But if we are having a conversation with someone and we feel it is appropriate to bring bring up something special or important to us, we can try it. We can share something that we've created or made with them. We can share an experience that was valuable to us. And very importantly, we need to make sure to ask them in return if they have a similar experience. Now, they may not want to share, and that is okay. Maybe with time they will. We could say in response to them, okay, but if you ever want to share something in the future, I'd love to hear. Us showing that we are open to listening to what is important to them is key. Because friendships are about two-way roads. Now let's talk about another common thing in friendship, and that is having too many casual friendships that may take up our time and prevent us from having very close friendships. So let's talk a little bit about how many friends we can realistically have. There is a theory around this called the Dunbar number. Now, scientist Dunbar theorizes that friendships take both time and mental energy, both of which are limited and finite in all of us. And in order to have strong, lasting friendships, it takes effort. For example, part of the reason romantic relationships are often monogamous is because romantic relationships can take a great deal of time, investment, and effort in order to be strong, intimate, and emotionally close. It is thought that if we were to divide that romantic, intimate time and attention among more people, then the relationship may be less strong or less intimate. Now, this is not necessarily a linear relationship, but it seems to be related and seems to be the case for majority, but not all. Havlovich in 2012 in the Journal of Computer Mediated Communication noted that not all communication is equal in regard to maintaining friendships. Participants in the study were asked to evaluate the quality of their interactions they had with their five best friends every day, whether that be face-to-face, FaceTiming, phone calls, emails, or texting. The scientists noted, which is probably not too surprising to us, that face-to-face and FaceTiming interactions were superior to phone calls, emails, and texting. They also noted that, interestingly, any interaction, regardless of medium, that resulted in laughter 
we're rated far more impactful for the closeness in that relationship. Now, in face-to-face and FaceTime interactions, what they share is that they provide visual cues that allow us to monitor and adjust the flow of the interaction better. Otherwise, communication could be hindered with a lack of facial expressions and vocal tone, etc. So by this study's finding, for example, a 15-minute FaceTime or face-to-face interaction might be more impactful for our friendships than a two-hour phone call or 100 text messages. So there, there is not necessarily a linear relationship between time and a relationship, but the effort and the emotional closeness could be connected to time and the interactions and our ability to remain close and have a strong friendship. So because friendships take time and effort, there is a limited number of people to which we can make this time and effort investment into. In 2018, in the journal Trends in Cognitive Science, Dunbar goes into this. It is thought that we can have four to five really close friendships. And now these friendships are considered different from family. Our ability to invest in four to five friends depends on our time available and our skill of mentalizing. This might be a new word for some of us, so let's define it. Mentalizing is the ability to understand and work with many other people's state of mind. It is a component of emotional intelligence. Mentalizing is our ability to read people and to know how to respond to people appropriately in order to have a good outcome. There is now considerable evidence to suggest that the number of friends an individual has correlates with their mentalizing skills. So someone that has high emotional intelligence is likely to have more friends. So if you are very emotionally intelligent, you are likely to be able to handle more close friendships. Now using functional magnetic resonance imaging studies, scientists show that the higher someone's mentalizing capability, the greater their gray matter volume in the medial orbital frontal prefrontal cortex of the brain. This supports the notion that emotional intelligence comes from the front part of our brain that regulates our decision-making, our planning, memory, and complex thinking. So if we want to have more close friendships, we could try to enhance our emotional intelligence and our skill of mentalizing. And I go into some of those details on emotional intelligence back in episode 57. So that is a wrap, my people scientist army. Some practical science on friendship as adults. Friendships take time and effort, but choosing to put our effort into certain interactions might be more beneficial. For example, face-to-face or FaceTiming interactions appear to be more impactful for the closeness in a friendship relationship. Interactions with laughter also seem to be beneficial for increasing closeness. And trying to aim for a friendship with components of virtue, meaning wanting what is best for one another, aiming for improvement in each other. These efforts are likely to result in stronger, lasting friendships. Now, being comfortable with rejection and realizing that not everyone has time to hang out with us is an important mindset to have if we choose to look for new friends. But inviting other people to something convenient that we were already going to do, like asking if they want to join us and getting a coffee, might be a simple and non-assuming start of that friendship. Sharing what we are passionate about And giving a moment of vulnerability may also help foster a strong, close friendship. 
And I hope that this episode was interesting for all of you. I know it was a little bit different than my, than my usual episodes that are more so based on empirical evidence, as this episode contained a lot of philosophy, sociology, and my own personal experience. But please let me know what you thought of the episode. I'd love to hear what you think. If you don't already follow me on social media, make sure to do so, as that is where I share some of the scientific papers I cite in each episode. If you would like to buy me a coffee to say thank you for the show, you can do so via the links I share in the description box here. But because the next podcast launch date will fall on July 4th long weekend, I'm going to push the podcast episode date to the following week, so you can expect episode 128 in three weeks' time on Sunday, July 10th. I hope you all have an awesome day, and bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates. Thank you.